Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. So, Mark 4, you could flip there, you can click open there if you have your device. Uh, in the past, we've kind of broken up all these messages, like Mark 3, verses 1 through 17 or whatever. we got to cover all of Mark 4 today, okay? So I hope you guys didn't make dinner plans. We're going to be here a while, and I know it's hot. So uh, we're going to go straight Southern Baptist on it. So pull out your handkerchiefs. We're going to be here until I'm done preaching. Um, that's not true. It's hot. Um, but, uh, but we're not going to read all of Mark 4 because it is really, really long. So make sure today, tomorrow, you go back through, read through it. There's some really important stuff in there. But, but as you're about to see, it is packed full of stuff, packed full of stuff. And that's kind of continues to be true of the book of Mark. This is what we've talked about over and over again. The focus of Mark's gospel is all about Jesus's actions. We've seen that time and time again. I mean, if you look at this week alone, we have like five parables we have to get to, and we have the calming of the storm by, by Jesus. So if you've been around church, you're like, man, that's a lot to get through in one week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and one of the parables is also the, one of the most famous parables at, uh, at that. And so as I was looking through it, as I was preparing, I was like, man, what did I do? This was far too much to bite off in one week. But one of the things that we have to remember is oftentimes when we just kind of get down into like the microscope, the microscope of like the text and we think, oh, we're going to go through two verses. We're going to talk about one word or, you know, whatever. Pastors love to do that and geek out. Oftentimes what we miss is the breadth of that message. What was the author trying to communicate as a whole? And so today we get to look at the breadth of Mark chapter four and all of it and what he was trying to say, because Mark chapter 4 is much different than the rest of Mark that we've looked at so far. Because in the first three chapters in Mark, a ton has happened. We have Jesus' baptism. We have the story of John the Baptist. Jesus, he, he calls out a, an impure spirit. He calls his disciples. He begins healing people. Then he leaves to go find solitude out by, by the lake. He heals a leper. He heals a paralyzed man. Uh, he calls Levi and has a party at his house after that. Um, he, uh, he gets questioned by the Pharisees about fasting. Then he claims he's Lord of the Sabbath. Then he heals on the Sabbath, just, I'm pretty sure, to make sure all of the Pharisees are very, very frustrated. Tons of people are following him around everywhere. He appoints all 12 disciples, and he gets accused by his family and the Pharisees, essentially, of heresy at some point. So we have covered all of that in three chapters, okay? All of these stories, if you were to look at the book of Matthew, if you were to look at the book of Luke, and sometimes in the book of John, all of these stories are much longer in scope. So Mark really does, like in three or four verses, what Luke does sometimes in like an entire chapter. And, and that's what we're going to see today, is that all of a sudden, we have a, a switch from what Jesus did, a focus on what Jesus did, to switching to what Jesus said, what Jesus taught. This is actually the only time, other than Mark chapter 13, where Mark takes time to talk about what it is that Jesus said, rather than look at what it is that that Jesus did. And I think, and to be fair, oftentimes all of us would assume like, hey, actions speak louder than words, right? And that's kind of what Mark gets at here in a lot of his gospel, that actions speak louder than words. I don't care what it is that you say, your actions are actually going to dictate to me what it is that you believe. And the Bible actually agrees with you. James 2.18, it says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Don't just tell me what you believe. Show me. Show me 
what it is you believe. Because, you know, I could get up here every week, and there's this, this old term that doesn't get thrown around anymore, but it's this term called Baptist guilt. Has anybody ever heard that term, Baptist guilt, right? You only feel, Baptists tend to only feel good when they walk out of church feeling bad about themselves, right? That's how, that's how they used to know that the pastor did their job. If he stepped on enough toes, I was like, man, I'm a terrible person. Church was great, right? Like I could do, like, like I could come in week in and week out, and there's a phrase that among pastors is called a bully pulpit, where I could just be up here, and, and you're a sinner, and all these different things. You can feel bad about yourself, and then I was like, you know what? Yeah, feel pretty good. Feel pretty good walking out of church, or on the other side, I could come up here and talk about, man, if you just have enough faith, if you have enough faith, your, your car is going to, Jesus is going to pay off your car, and you know, one of the ways he'll do that is you just put a $1,000 check back in the tithe box and you have enough faith in Jesus. Like I could say those things, right? I could say like, if you just have enough faith, your dad is going to be cured of whatever or whatever it is that you're walking. Like, so, so I could come up here and I can say all of those different things, but the reality is the actions behind them are probably going to speak louder than those words. The actions behind those things are, are, are far more important. I think it's actually true with some, with, with all of us, I think with all Christians, we come here every week, we talk about Jesus, and then we are judged by what it is that we do rather than what it is that we say that we believe. That's why so often Christians get to wear the moniker of hypocrite, right? Because we, we come to church, we say we believe one thing, we worship Jesus, and I'll do all the things for you, Jesus. I love you so much, Jesus. And we get out into the world, and then our actions don't line up with our belief system. Our actions don't line up with what it is that we say we believe, because so often we say one thing, but then we do another. And so while I do agree it's true for the most part that actions speak louder than, word, louder than words, my assumption is, though, when it comes to Jesus, we should probably listen to the words as well. And beyond just Jesus, if you were to walk in and just see somebody doing something without any context, without understanding the why behind what it is that they are doing, and there's probably something concerning there, right? So like, for example, if you came into one of our Wednesday nights, which are currently on pause, but if you came into one of our Wednesday nights and you saw me down on the floor, scrubbing the floor, and everybody else just kind of sitting around and, and enjoying their meals, and here's this, the senior pastor of the church down on the floor, scrubbing the floor and cleaning the floor, you would be like, man, one, one of two things. Why is the pastor doing that? Or, man, he's such a servant. What a great guy right? But the context, if you're missing context, you don't know why it is that I'm doing that. You don't recognize that we had, man, a little kid barfed, and the parents had to take care of the little kid, and I don't want barf around while everybody else is eating their meals. So the pastor was the only one there to clean it up, and he cleaned it up, right? So context obviously matters. Those things matter. And so when it comes to Jesus here, and Jesus' teaching, we need to listen to what it is that he is saying, because his actions, or his words rather, are always backed up by his actions, but think about your context for a second. Okay, think about, think about the things that, that you believe, maybe your faith. Your faith is strengthened in two ways. Two ways your, strength is, your, your faith is strengthened. It's, it's by, by reading and, and experiencing what Jesus has said, what he has taught, right? Reading the Bible or by seeing what it is he is doing. So maybe it's through prayer, or you see the, the actions that he's doing in your life, how he's working, that sort of thing. So hearing and seeing are the two ways, oftentimes, that, we, that, that our faith is strengthened. And faith really is a funny thing, right? Faith is kind of like wisdom. You don't have it when you need it, 
right? Like you have to experience all these things in order to strengthen your faith or in order to strengthen the amount of wisdom that you have. And so when you're walking through something very, very trying, whatever that thing is, people are like, oh, just hang on. You got to have more faith. And you're like, how do I have more faith? Well, go through this and then you'll have a little bit more faith, right? So faith is kind of a, kind of a funny thing, a funny thing that way. So today, that's what Jesus is going to dive into though. The teaching of how to strengthen your faith, both by listening to what Jesus says and seeing what Jesus does. So remember how up until this point, in, in, all the way through Mark, Mark 1 through 3, I keep saying that Jesus kind of follows this pattern. He usually goes into a synagogue or he goes someplace to teach. Once he goes to that place to teach, tons of people crowd in, right? He heals somebody, he exercises some demons, he does some teaching, and then he bounces. He leaves. He doesn't want to hang out with all of the crowds anymore. So oftentimes he goes into solitude, spends some time with, spends some time with God, and then he goes back and then he does it again over and over and over. So the same thing is happening here. The same thing is happening as we open up chapter four, that all of these people begin surrounding Jesus, and they're pushing in on him near the Sea of Galilee. And so because of that, the disciples, they grab a boat and they put it into the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus begins to sit in the boat and all the people are kind of fanned around the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus begins to teach from the edge of the boat. And in short, today, he taught in what we would call parabolic rhetoric. I know. I said it to sound fancy. Essentially, it's parables, right? He's going to teach in stories is the way he is going to teach. If you're new to church, a parable is essentially a story to express kind of a deeper truth, meaning, or theology. So let's look at the first parable that he teaches here. It starts in verse 3. Jesus says, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is one of the most famous parables. It's called the parable of the sower. Okay? And, and if you've been around church for any amount of time, most likely you have heard a pastor preach on the parable of the sower. If you, maybe if you've read the gospels, like you understand this parable. To, to many of us, this parable is actually a fairly simple parable. Right? But if you were to take it out of context, if you didn't understand the explanation that's going to come in a second, it becomes a lot more difficult, right? So essentially the parable goes, a farmer comes, he scatters seed, and the seed lands on all these different places, it lands on the path, the birds eat it, it lands on rocky places, and it shot up real quick, and it had no roots, and so the sun scorched it, and it, and it died, it lands in the thorns, and the thorns choked out the plant, and the farmer uh, was hoping to have grow, and then it fell on good soil, and it's successful, they have a bumper crop. That's a good story. That story makes sense to all of us who have spent time uh, in the church, but the most important part of this story, the most important part of this passage in context of Mark chapter 4, I believe, is what Jesus says in verse 9. In verse 9, Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. That's the most important part of this story. Whoever can understand this teaching in light of spiritual matters, good on you. Everybody else, sorry. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. If you understand this, great, hear it. Everybody else, you're out of luck. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So why teach like this is the question. Why would you teach like this? Because for me, like I'm a, I'm a relatively simple guy. Like if you want to tell me something, just tell me something. Don't tell me this long metaphor in order for me to try to get the understanding. Just tell me straight up how it is. Because without the second half of this story, or without the knowledge that you have for maybe hearing this story somewhere else, this parable actually isn't that simple to understand unless you have context. I'll prove it to you. It would be like me walking on a stage and saying, once there was a man who had a son. Okay? Everybody tracking? Good with my, with my parable so far? And, and that son really liked to eat candy. You know, he liked candy so much that at every opportunity, he went back to the cupboard to find more, even when he wasn't supposed to. One day, the boy went back to the cupboard, and he realized all the candy was gone. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's it. Like, drop the mic. Great sermon, everybody. I'm out, right? Like, that's, what, that's how Jesus is teaching here because you have no context. We have no explanation as to what that story actually, actually is. And then, like, I would switch to another parable. You would be confused, maybe frustrated because you know I'm a pastor, so there's got to be some sort of spiritual meaning because he's on stage, which means, he had, like, it has to be spiritual matters. But what is the spiritual undertone? What am I supposed to learn? Is, is it that that the man is, is God and the boy is Jesus and it's a story about Jesus going to rescue people until there's no one else who is willing to be rescued anymore because the people are the candy and the cupboard is earth. Like, like is that the story? Like, is that the parable? Or is it about like honoring your father? Because this boy, he kept going back to the cupboard over and over and he ended up with a stomach ache and getting grounded because he ate all of his dad's stash, right? Like where, like where is, what is this parable actually mean? What is the answer? So the disciples are actually frustrated at Jesus at this point because they're confused. They don't understand what it is that he's, like why are you teaching this way? So they ask him, what is the meaning behind these parables? Teach us. So in verses 11 and 12, Jesus says this, he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may, may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. So he's saying, the reason I teach in parables is because, you know, all of those people who are out here, all of those people who want, who want to come and, and listen to me, as a reminder, we have said numerous times that these people were, they, they were fine with Jesus' teaching, but that's not what brought them to the shore. That's not what brought them to the synagogue. That's not what brought them to the house church. They were more interested in Jesus the magician than they were Jesus the teacher. That's what they wanted to see. What is this guy going to do next? How is he going to entertain me next? He didn't care that most of them did not care about what he was actually teaching, the things that he was actually saying. They just went, man, I haven't seen Jesus exercise a demon yet. I'm here for that. I want to see Jesus exercise a demon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Sower, plants, all of that stuff, whatever. I want to see him exercise a demon. And so here, Jesus really says the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean being saved and going to heaven, although that's obviously part of it. It means any situation, 
on heaven or on earth that reflects God's power, reflects, reflects God's sovereignty, reflects God's holiness, Jesus is willing to give the 12 and the other disciples this special understanding of how God is working at that moment. That they can see how it is that God is moving. The word secret here in the verse, it comes from the Greek root word mysterion. Mysterion, which is where we get the word mystery. It refers to something hidden, something not readily available to the public. And it's only discovered, it's only understood through divine revelation. And so in this case, Jesus is providing an explanation, which we're going to get to in just a second. In our case, the secrets, the mysterion, are revealed through the Bible, which is a recording of obviously a ton of different revelations and that sort of thing. I know what you're thinking. Because it's what I would think. That's not fair. How come the disciples get to know what all of this means? But it's a mystery to everybody else. How come everybody else can't understand what what it is that it means? But the parable of of the sower actually explains why it is that makes sense, why they have access to more information. In the parable of the sower, you see that these people, these are the good soil. They readily accept the seed. They nurture that seed to germination, yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, as it says in Mark 4.8. So in other words, the disciples here, they chose to stay and ask for clarification. I think that's it. I legitimately think that Jesus says that the crowd receives everything in parables. This includes Jesus' actions, his teaching, even, you know, his physical miracles have a deeper meaning than what's seen on the surface. And even at the outset, the disciples don't understand what it is that this teaching means. The only reason the disciples understand this teaching is because they went back later on and asked Jesus, what does this teaching mean? That's it. Like, like, like that, legitimately, that's it. So all of Jesus' ministry is hidden from those who don't dig deeper. This doesn't make God's truth hidden. This doesn't make God's truth mystical or complicated. It just requires that a person care enough to actually pay attention and be willing to learn. Anyone can do that if they have the desire to do so. So then he explains the parable for the disciples because they're still confused. The seed is the word of God. Okay, that's good. Context, that matters. So the seed on the path is taken by Satan right after people hear it, the word of God. Seed in the rocks is like when people hear the word of God and they get excited about it, but because they have no depth, they wither and they fade. The seed in the, in the, in the thorns gets choked out by people who hear the word, but then get worried about life and care about other things more than they care about God. In the good soil, people hear the word, they accept it, it produces fruit from their lives. So while the parable is good, be willing to dig deeper to understand and care enough to understand it is the actual teaching here, at least for the disciples. This may not be true of everyone. There, my assumption is there are people in the crowd who heard that parable and were like, yep, I know exactly what that means. The seed is the word of God. And those people would have been more intuitive than I would have been. Because if I just read the first part of that, I'd be like, cool story about a sower. So when are you teaching about the kingdom of God? Like, when is that part happening? Because people are coming out in droves, right, to see Jesus perform miraculous things, to heal people. And so if they didn't care enough to hear more and to dig deeper, then they weren't there for the right reasons anyway. They were there to be entertained. And it's, it's synonymous with our type of Christianity so often. You know, if I'm being 
completely honest, this consumeristic type of Christianity that we love to play in America. And hear me, I love America. Okay, I, people think I don't like America. I say, yeah, American Christianity, whatever. Like, on the 4th of July, I'm going to blow up stuff with my kids just like any red-blooded American should, right? Like, that's the way that we, we celebrate. But we have a problem here with our priorities oftentimes when it comes to how we pick a church. When we go to church, we just want to ask ourselves, does it suit our needs? I mean, we can rephrase that and say, does it entertain me? Right? Is, is the music my style? That's timely for us in a season we're about to enter when everybody's going to have an opinion about the style of music we should put on stage. Right? Does that, is, that, is that the most important thing? Is, is it the funnest church for my kids to go to? My favorite, do the service times fit around my schedule because I got to get to Panera before everybody else? All right. And when it comes to church, we should be concerned with one thing. Is the Bible preached and represented in such a way that honors God and points people back to him? That's it. That's it. If the answer is yes, then dig in and be part of the community of believers. If the answer is no, get out of there as fast as humanly possible. Churches don't exist to entertain people. That's not why we're here. Churches don't exist to bow to people's whims and bow to people's preferences. The church exists to make God look good and Christ well known, period. That's it. So let's make sure that we're people on good soil this morning. Make sure we're digging in and asking the right questions, the questions that matter, ultimately matter in the long run. That we aren't coming to hear the word of God from a place of wanting to be entertained, but coming to a place that is willing to serve up some steak when it is time to learn about Jesus. But I digress. Let's keep going. So after that encounter, after the disciples encounter, Jesus keeps going and he keeps teaching in parables over and over and over again. He teaches about how it is we are supposed to represent him with our lives, but not hiding our decision to follow Jesus. Just like when you light a lamp, you don't put it under a bowl, right? That's that next parable. And in Mark 4, 23, it says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, teaching in parables, talking about faith. Then he tells two more parables. The kingdom of God is like a man scattering and eventually harvesting grain. Jesus goes back to the farmer again. Remember, it's an agrarian culture, much like the Central Valley. People know about farming, everybody but me, okay? And the kingdom of God, he goes on, is like a mustard seed that begins tiny and then grows to be the largest garden plant. So he goes on and on and on. He's telling parable after parable. You know how I know? Mark 33, 34, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. They still didn't get it, but he kept teaching that way. 34, he did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. Disciples didn't get it. They didn't get it over and over and over again. They didn't get it. And remember, these are the guys that Jesus chose to help him change and shape the world when he was gone. These are the guys who, who are going to be responsible for setting up a new way to do church. They're going to be the first Christian church planters. These guys are going to be the first Christian missionaries. These are Jesus' guys. And after every time Jesus spoke in parables, he had to explain it to them over and over. And, and I don't think the point here is that the disciples were dumb. I mean, to be fair, I don't think they were that smart in the first place. But I also don't think that they were complete and total dummies, right? I think the point here is that the disciples were willing to stay and the disciples were willing to lean in when it seemed difficult to follow Jesus or it seemed confusing 
to follow Jesus. And sure, Jesus was frustrated they couldn't get on the first try. In verse 13, Jesus says, don't you understand this parable? How will you understand any parable? If you don't get this one, how are you going to get the rest of them? That's what Jesus tells his disciples there. But the difference between the disciples and everyone else is that the disciples cared enough to seek clarity. The disciples stuck in when things got difficult, when things were above their pay grade, when they didn't understand it. They didn't leave because it got challenging. They stayed to seek clarity because they trusted the Lord. That's the difference. I think this is one of the differences we see with people who've landed on the good soil versus those who land on any other type. Right? Rather than running away or giving up, they were willing to stay and fight and do the work necessary to understand the teaching. And they knew they weren't perfect. The disciples knew they weren't perfect. All four gospels are filled with stories of the disciples' failure, but they endure anyway. Most often they throw themselves under the bus. Sometimes they throw each other under the bus. My favorite is John's depiction of what happens uh, when Jesus is risen, right? John and Peter are in a foot race, and John feels the need to include that he beat Peter to the tomb. Like, cool. Thanks, John. You're faster than Peter. I would have been so mad at him. But that's the difference, is that, yeah, we're failures, but we're going to stick in. We're going to do the hard thing because we recognize who Jesus is. We recognize that he is sovereign. I mean, look at the last section here. After Jesus was done teaching, they got into a boat to go across the lake. And Jesus takes a nap when the storm comes up, which is always one of my favorite verses. Anytime Jesus is sleeping, man, that's my favorite. I'm like, sorry, I'm going to go be like Jesus right now. <laughs> Take a nap. Right? So Jesus takes a nap and a storm comes up and the disciples are terrified. It says the waves are crashing, started crashing over the boat. Boat. These guys are experienced fishermen. Like we said last week, up to seven of these guys would have been fishermen, would have understood how weather happened in the Sea of Galilee on the lake. Like they would have gotten it. And so for this storm to scare them this badly, it had to be a real storm. And in verse 38, they go over to Jesus, who's taking a nap, and they ask him if he cares that they are about to drown, right? Then Jesus gets up, he rebukes the storm, and after he rebukes the storm, then he decides it's time to rebuke his disciples, and he gets to rebuke two things in the same breath. Mark 4.40, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you still afraid? You still have no faith. I don't know if the intention here was for us to look at the disciples' unbelief after the storm, as well as look at their not being able to understand what Jesus was teaching earlier in Mark 4, but, but it goes hand in glove. It really goes hand in glove with, with, what, was, with what was going on. Because while he was teaching, he told them, he who has ears, let him hear. And they couldn't hear until Jesus explained it. Then in the boat, when they thought they were going to die, Jesus may have well have said, he who has eyes to see, let him see. Like, I could have seen Jesus saying something like that to them. Look, you heard what it is that I have to say. Now look what it is that I'm doing. Both of those things. Because, because he questions their faith again. And so for me, this is where the rubber kind of meets the road for us this morning. Hear me on this. I know oftentimes people think that, that I encounter God or I'm closest to God when things are the most difficult, right? That's oftentimes where people have like those life-changing moments. 
They're like, oh, yeah, I've, I was never closer to God when so-and-so was walking through cancer. I lost, you know, a, a loved one or, or whatever. And I think those are definitely moments that, are elevate, that like elevate the understanding of our need for a Savior, understand our, 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 or elevate our understanding of our need for, for somebody else, for more wisdom in our life, strength in our life, whatever that may be. But I don't think those are the times in our life that define our faith. I'm actually thankful those times in our life don't define our faith. How is it that you respond when this story is over? I think is the question we have to ask ourselves. Like in your faith, once the story is over and you don't understand what is happening in the story or what happened in the story, how do you respond in your life? And whatever story is currently being told, or, or the storm maybe that is in your life, when that storm is over, how do you respond to that after all of it is said and done? Do we walk away assuming that, you know what, that storm was crazy, it got too hard, forget about it, I'm out. Jesus clearly wasn't doing enough. The guy was sleeping, how dare he? I was terrified. So I'm done, I'm out. Or we do that, that hard work maybe of asking questions, digging into reasoning, asking other believers what they saw, reading God's word to see clarity on what it is that, that is going on. Because I think that too often in the midst of storms, in the midst of misunderstandings, we are willing to walk away from what we say we believe simply because it got difficult. When in reality, maybe Jesus is just about to wake up from a nap and take care of everything. And that doesn't mean he's always going to make things easier, but it does mean that if we endure a little bit longer, we are going to see what Jesus has done. We are going to understand what Jesus has taught us, and we are going to be better and smarter and closer to Jesus when all is said and done. Our faith is going to grow because of our willingness to endure. Think about your life for a moment. You know, we may call out to Jesus in the midst of hardship, maybe when you, you lost a job, Maybe when a loved one died, maybe you had a miscarriage. I don't know your difficulty this morning. But it isn't in the middle of difficulty when you see what Jesus is doing. That's when you see your need for Jesus, but you don't see in the middle of your difficulty what Jesus is doing. It's on the other side of the difficulty where your faith is defined by your staying power and the 2020 hindsight that you've received. That's when you tend to receive your clarity. So I don't talk about this this often, but before I came to FBH, I was positive, positive that God had a landing spot for Sarah and I in a church that we both knew and loved. Positive. I mean, Golden Brick Road, if we follow it, we will get to Oz. Positive. That this is where God was going to have it, right? Have us. I knew the people on the search committee. My resume was relatively strong. They knew how, who I was thought I was a shoo-in. I mean, mentored by the former pastor. And after the entire process was over, all I'm doing is waiting for a phone call. Just waiting for a phone call to say, yep, man, we are so excited that you are going to come and be our, our next senior pastor. I was just waiting for the green light. So, so on my way home from work one day, I remember I, I got a phone call right as I was down the street from our house when we were living in Apple Valley. I got a phone call and it was from the town that I was waiting to hear from. And I was like, this is it. Let's go. And so I answered the phone 
And the guy on the other line wasn't as happy as I thought he should sound for me coming to be their senior pastor, right? I don't know why. I'm like, this is good news you're about to tell me. It wasn't good news. He said, hey, appreciate you, uh, you applying for the job, but we think we're going to go in this other direction. And I had known the other, like I knew it was me and one other guy. Like I was like, God, like we are positive. Like everything in our life has led to this moment. All of our experiences, our family, like everything that we are has, has led to this point. And all of a sudden, like, like God, you completely and totally, I feel like you failed me in the midst of this. It felt like I got punched in the gut. And so I remember even asking, like I was like, hold on, you're wrong. Like I asked, like, like why didn't I get this job? Like, I asked him. I couldn't take my medicine like a man, apparently. I was like, no, you tell me why right now. And he didn't have a great answer for me, which even put more fuel on the fire, right? I was like, they couldn't even tell me why I didn't get the job. So I walked inside, and I told Sarah, and and her face changed. And like my wife always is, is encouraging. That's okay. God has something better for us, something different for us. And so we prayed about it, and and man, I was frustrated and angry, and like, I am so glad my faith was not defined by that low point in my life, by the storm in my life, by the misunderstanding of that story in my life. And I wish I could tell you that, man, after reading and prayer and, and talking with other people and spending time with Jesus, that two, three months later, like, I understood why it is that God would put this other person in their path and instead of us, and I didn't. I didn't get it. And it was a hard year for us of like, God, what are you doing? What are you doing in the midst of all of this stuff? And then I got an opportunity to to sit down with a guy who was way too Scottish. His name was Gilbert. He worked for GHC, and he told me about this little church called FBH in Hanford, California that I had never heard of. I was like, all right, let's have that conversation And so now being six years removed from that, five years removed from that, like looking back, I recognize God's sovereignty. I recognize what he was doing. I recognize his call on our life. I recognize him protecting me from things and protecting even even the church from me because the two of us weren't synonymous. It would have been a really hard match. And so I I see that now And my faith is stronger now because I'm on this side of that story. I get the benefit of 2020 vision. I get the benefit of reading God's word. I get the benefit of seeking clarity when when there was misunderstanding. I get the benefit of seeing that, yeah, the storm raged. Jesus was taking a nap. He took care of it. And we're all good now. We're safe. And now look how my faith has grown since then. And that's where I get to land. That's where we get to land, because I didn't hear God in that moment. All I saw was a, was a confusing parable and a ton of wind and a ton of waves ready to take me down. So looking back, I see God. I see his faithfulness, and my faith is made stronger now because of our ability to trust God when we didn't understand things. But man, in the moment, I was just trying to get to the bottom of it. I was trying to hang on to the sides of the boat to make sure we didn't fall out. And I think there's something to be said for digging in and accepting the reality that we aren't always going to have the answers immediately. 
We aren't, and that's okay. I think the not understanding where God is moving all the time is an opportunity to hone and sharpen our faith in a very real way. And oftentimes, it is in the midst of the story or the storm. It's in the aftermath of it all, of us being willing to say, God, I don't understand it, but I am going to hang on. I'm going to dig in and trust that you know what you're doing much better than I do. Church, if that was our posture, that we don't know why some things happen, but at the end of the day, God has it much more under control than we do. That we, that we don't understand what he's teaching us sometimes, but we're willing to hold our ground because his lesson is worth it in the end. We would be much more compelling as a group of believers. We would be a group of believers who is known for our steadfastness and, you know, God bless it, our stubbornness as well for understanding that God is sovereign and we aren't. And when we're known for things like that, when we're known for our steadfastness, when the world is flipped upside down because of recession or inflation or war or all the craziness that life just tends to bring, the world will begin searching for answers in the steadfastness of faith, even when we are unsure of what God is doing. So this, week, this week, my challenge to you is to just dig in a little bit deeper. Hold on a little bit tighter, even when you don't know what God is up to, in order to ensure that, that your faith gains a little more traction and the world has an example to look to. All right, I'll end with this. When, when Kyle came to me a couple months back and told me, hey, I think my time is up. And by the way, Kyle and I have had this ongoing joke of dealing with our grief, like I said before, of the first couple years when Kyle was here, if I would like walk into his office unsolicited or call, I would call him into my office and he didn't know what it was about or anything like that. He would always come in and just be like, is this it? Like, is this the conversation? Like that like ongoing joke. And then about a year and a half, two years in, anytime he would come into my office or he would call me into his office unsolicited, I would say, Kyle, is this it? Like, is this the conversation? And just a fun little joke that we had um, because both of us were always nervous that we were going to lose the other one in some way, right? Um, And so then all of a sudden, Kyle was like, hey, I need to have a conversation with you. And so I walk up to him. It was actually back in the sound booth. Walk up to him. I was like, hey, Kyle, is this it? Is this the conversation? (laughs) Just joking. He was like, yeah, (laughs) this is it. This is the conversation. I was like, oh, that." It was supposed to be a fun little joke, not reality, right? And so Kyle begins to tell me all these things. And as much as I love Kyle and I'm completely confident that Kyle was here for the very reason that God had him here, that we can talk about the pandemic and how Kyle and his knowledge with, with video and sound and technology was exactly what our church needed because within a week of us shutting down, Kyle had us live streaming Like if it were up to Jeff and I, we would be using like an iPhone, right? Probably the camera flipped the wrong way. And so Kyle was here and he was able to do that and lead us through some difficult things, lead us through some hard things. And so while he's here, I'm like, yeah, I know exactly why God has him here. But now we find ourselves in a time where where in spring and, and Easter and like our kids ministry, like everything just seemed to be blooming at the same time. I think our trajectory feels so good. Things are clicking. Things are moving like, like our church is becoming healthy, and then all of a sudden Kyle comes in and just like drops a bomb and walks out, and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, God, what are you doing in the midst of this? Why would you do this? I don't understand it, 
Me, Jeff, and Kyle, we are very close as a pastoral team. I've never worked with pastors that I'm this close with. We are friends outside of doing ministry with one another. God, why would you take Kyle away from us like this? And in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the misunderstanding, in the midst of the storm, I just have to think to myself, you know what? I don't know what God is doing about this. I don't know why God is doing this, but I know that God is sovereign. And I know that my responsibility as a believer is to simply trust him and to say that, Kyle, I love you. Good luck in Clovis. Can't believe you abandoned us. But that being said, I'm very excited for who God would have for us because in two years, as we get the opportunity to look back at where we are currently, maybe it won't be till then that we see how God sovereignly walked his hand along to bring us to the very person who is supposed to fill Kyle's shoes, who is supposed to fill his role, and to do so even better than Kyle was able to do in the context in which he is serving. We just gotta trust his sovereignty even when we don't understand the story, even when we don't understand the storm. God has everything figured out. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. God, thank you. Thank you that we are finite. God, thank you that, that, we, are, that, that we aren't going to understand everything. Because God, if we were able to explain away everything that you do, everything that you have done, we were able to explain away all of your teaching, who you, were, who you are, all of the mysterious that surrounds you, Father. God, I don't know if we're worshiping God at that point, but rather worshiping our own ability to explain you away. And so, Father, thank you for being way bigger than we are. Thank you for being infinite. Thank you for being sovereign and understanding exactly how everything is supposed to fit together. God, thank you for being sovereign enough to, to know that we were one day going to sin and that the only way back to you was to send your son on our behalf. And so, Father, maybe for those in here this morning who have not yet said yes to your son, who have not yet made that profession of faith, maybe for those here this morning who want to recognize your sovereignty, in the midst of hardship, if that's you and you just want to say yes to Jesus, just simply pray along with me, make a profession of faith in your heart. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I've constantly fallen short. But B, I believe you sent your Son to die on a cross for me, to bear all of those sins so I could be with you in eternity forever and see that I would choose to follow you every single day of my life. Including in the days where I don't understand what it is that you're up to, I don't understand what it is that's happening. Father, I rest in the peace that you know. So we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.